91. The investment manager seeking opportunities in change. The world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at Risk. 91 is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Hello everyone and welcome to The Day It's All Changed. This is CityWire's podcast on change management in association with 91. I'm Ian Horn, your host for the show, and today I'm joined by Scott Harrison. Scott, thank you for joining me. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Hey, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It is great to have you here. Scott, for those who don't know, has achieved some incredible things. He's been recognized in Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 list. He's been on the Forbes Magazine Impact 30 list and is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, which is all very cool. And he's achieved these things by doing something truly incredible, which is to raise over $600 million dollars towards the provision of clean water worldwide, funding over 79,000 water projects in 29 countries through his charity, which is named Charity Water. So Scott, this is honestly mind-blowing, um, and we're going to get onto that in due course, but this is called The Day It All Changed, and I know you went on a, a personal, perhaps even spiritual journey before you did any of this. So Scott, can you can you tell our listeners what you were doing before you founded the charity, and, and, and for you, can you tell us about the day that it all changed? Yeah, well, I had a, a, a very, I guess, non-traditional path into the world of humanitarian work. Um, maybe starting back at the beginning, I was born in, in a middle-class family uh, in, in Philadelphia on the east coast of, of the United States. And when I was four years old, there was a terrible carbon monoxide gas leak in our home, and it almost killed my mom, my dad, and I. Um, it was discovered when my mom passed out on New Year's Day, 1980, in, on the bedroom floor and kind of crumpled to a heap. And uh, she was the, the canary in the coal mine, so that led to this discovery of a leak. And, and my family was just never the same again. Uh, Dad and I did recover, but mom never did. And she became an invalid, uh, just a completely disabled for the rest of her life as her immune system just never bounced back. It was permanently shut down, uh, really, from the carbon monoxide. So I think that's just important. So I grew up this kind of good Christian kid. I played piano in the church. I wanted to be a doctor to help sick people like my mom. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I was a caregiver. I cooked for my mom. I cleaned the house. I was, uh, I was just the helper, and I was an only child. Kind of act two of my life, uh, I woke up uh, one day and I realized I was 18 years old and I didn't have to follow any of the rules anymore. And instead, uh, I could perhaps ex explore the opposite of all those rules. And I also learned New York City was only about two hours away from where I was living. So I moved to New York City and I thought, well, you know, if you were to rebel, you should do it in style. And uh, I decided to become a nightclub promoter. <laughs> so I spent the next 10 years filling up nightclubs full of rich and famous people, uh, drinking and partying and drugging my way you know, through the city and then eventually through other cities around the world and chasing Fashion Week from Milan to Paris to London and, and you know, just kind of behaving like, uh, like an infant, really, Ian. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I totally get it. 
Yeah, dinner at 10, the club at 12, you know, some <laughs> disgusting after hours at five in the morning and then, you know, popping an Ambien at noon to to come down and, and you know do it all over again at eight o'clock that night. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of laughing about it now, but there was a there was a real uh, darkness to the lifestyle and to the the kind of descent into <laughs> debauchery and decadence and uh, emotional, spiritual decay over over these 10 years and you know the day it all changed for me um, was really a moment in South America on New Year's Eve and I remember I, I was with the jet set uh, I think we'd flown private on some you know wealthy guy's plane and my girlfriend at the time was on the, the cover of a fashion magazine and there was a yacht that came with this house that we'd rented and there were servants and people waiting on us hand and foot and there was this party on New Year's Eve that just lasted forever I remember waking up on New Year's Day and it was 3 p.m. and I just wanted the music to stop and people were still there they were dancing they were doing drugs and it just felt so unhealthy and here we were in a beautiful setting near the beach and it was just you know the, you know what I realized I realized there would never be enough that there would never be enough money. There would never be enough, you know, beautiful women. There would never be enough status. Somebody would always have more. The better watch, the better car. Uh, and, and it was this kind of, we were all just in this endless pursuit of accumulating more. And honestly, nobody was happy. You know, that was kind of the big realization. As I looked at people who were much wealthier, you know, who were more successful, there was this sense of kind of, frenetic uh, lack of meaning, lack of purpose in just the, in the party. So I uh, realized that I'd come very far from my, uh, my foundation of spirituality, morality, and, and wanting to be a doctor when I grew up and, and pursue a noble profession. And uh, I decided, you know, I needed to make a change. And the, it took a couple months to kind of come back to New York City and, and work through that. But I wound up just saying, I'm going to sell everything I own and I'm going to make my life look the exact opposite. And that idea was, what if I could volunteer for one year to give uh, kind of almost a tithe or 10% back of the 10 years I'd wasted and I could join a humanitarian mission and see if I could be useful? Would I have any skills that could, could you know, find purpose? And, uh, you know, the, to, to bring this to an end, you know, the, uh, the first 10 organizations I applied to all denied me because they were serious humanitarian aid organizations and who wants some bozo nightclub promoter, you know, running around. <laughs> but finally, one organization took me uh, under the condition that I paid them uh, about 350 pounds every month. And I went to go live in post-war Liberia, West Africa, a country with no electricity, no running water, no sewage, and no mail in a country that had just come out of 14 years of civil war. So this felt perfect to me, and I'm like, this is the opposite of my life, I'm in. And then yeah. really everything changed when I set foot in West Africa in that country uh, for the very first time, and, and that was about 17 years ago, and I never never looked back. That is just astonishing. I, I had a question written for you, which, which was essentially what makes a man decide to spend a year on a hospital ship off the coast of Liberia, but I think you've covered that. Well, that's it's, a long answer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a long answer, but it's, it's such a it's such a drastic thing to do. Do you, do you, do you think that you, you had to 
kind of almost hit, I think rock bottom's the wrong term, because it doesn't sound like you, you bottomed out, but more realised that what you were doing was kind of hollow. Do you think you needed to hit that realisation before you could embark on this journey? I, I do, and I also think into, you know, so I, I wound up quitting smoking and drinking and drugging and, and all that stuff kind of in, in one night in cold turkey. I also think my environment needed to change. So, you know, imagine, you know, here I go spraying champagne, you know, from a DJ booth to then I'm with a group of humanitarian doctors and surgeons. You know, it is not cool to smoke or drink or do drugs around doctors and surgeons who are there, you know, literally trying to use their hands to save people's lives, to use their their medical skills in the service of others. So the 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 environment or the context I was in changed so dramatically as well that it was easier to maybe I didn't have to resist if that makes sense I don't know that I could have just quit everything even if I had to continue a profession in in nightlife yeah because a lot of people ask me you know well I want to change my life but you know I I just keep you know I try to stop doing this but then I just keep falling back into bad habits and you know I think that is one of the parts of my story that I realized later how important that was that the people I was now surrounded with in this new context had a completely different uh, direction. They, they had a completely different intention for their lives than the people I had just been surrounded with weeks earlier, which, where it was about partying and, and getting laid. Yeah, it seems like the environment you're in is, is so important. And I, I want to ask about that, actually, because vices are obviously hard to escape. It's one thing to go cold turkey for a month, three months, or, or however long, but... You, you know, this is, this is a constant thing, right? Do, do you feel like you've been able to kind of conquer those thoughts? Or is, is it an ongoing battle still to this day when you think about uh, those vices? Yeah, it's been surprisingly easy. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, I was just doing out of boredom and, and a lot of other people were. There was nothing else going, there was nothing really getting us out of bed every day. We weren't driven by purpose we weren't driven by mission or meaning so it was it was really the banality of just having to go to the same club with the same people and listen to the dj and play the same songs night after night it was almost a numbing so for for me uh, i think really living was sober living uh and and you know i mean look nobody nobody ever thought smoking was good for you right <laughs> at least when i when i was doing it so I think it was it was surprisingly easy to to shed these things that had been such a part of my life for so long because I really didn't want them to be a part of my life. I didn't want to be that guy that smoked fifty cigarettes a day and walked around coughing, you know, and and everything just reeked of 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 nicotine. So I I, I think I I just needed to find the way to get out of it all all at once, and I, I felt very fortunate that that I did. Yeah, yeah, and, and clearly you did. But what do you think the key is? Because you, you strike me as someone who needs to have a focus, right? Needs to have something to fill that kind of boredom uh, and an activity, an ambition, a, you know, a, a passion. Is that the key to it for you? Um, you know, has has the charity and has the work you've that you've done kind of helped you redirect that energy? Yes, I mean for sure. So. You know, I wound up doing two years of volunteer service with these doctors, and I, I, I met a man there uh, who really became a mentor, or maybe the, um, a model for how I might live a meaningful life. And uh, his name was Dr. Gary Parker, 
and he was a, a surgeon in California, and he heard about these doctors who traveled on a ship, and instead of going on vacation to the Caribbean or the Maldives, they went to places of need around the world, and they, they just offered their services for free. And he'd heard about this opportunity, signed up for three months. When I joined this group called Mercy Ships, he'd been there for 21 years. He never went back to his profession. He never went back to using you know, surgery or plastic surgery for money. And he'd spent two decades serving others. And I just remember thinking, I mean, what a legacy. What uh, th this man had helped thousands and thousands of people directly. He had literally saved lives, people who could never repay him, uh, people who, who would die if he had not come. And just, you know, that was, that was the really the, the picture for me. Well, what if I did it for more than a year? What if I did it for 20 years? What if I did it for 30 years? What kind of impact might I be able to make? And it was really that second year in, in Liberia where I saw people drinking dirty water, and I learned that half of the country was drinking dirty, diseased swamp water, you know, from water from swamps and ponds and rivers. And then half of the sickness in the country was because people were drinking unsafe water and didn't have access to sanitation and hygiene. And Dr. Gary was really the one that said, you know, if you really cared about kind of global medicine, global health, just go get everybody water. You know, just go try to get everybody on the planet clean water. And there'd be less work for us doctors to do. And I remember that just seemed so simple. Yeah, and I was like 30 years old. and like, okay, uh, let me go and try and bring clean water to the whole world. And at the time, there were 1.1 billion people who were drinking dirty water. And for some reason, that seemed doable. That seemed achievable. And, and do you know what that figure is today? It is. We made a lot of progress. 771 million today. So we've gone from about a sixth of the planet when I started 15 years ago to about a tenth of the planet. Uh, we're making progress. Uh, we, we also have made less progress than we need to in the rural areas. Most of the progress has been cities and towns. So, you know, urban and peri-urban. Um, and now 82% of the people left on earth without access to water, you know, do live in these remote rural areas. So kind of think of this as, as last mile uh, getting getting a lot harder. But yeah, it's a, it's a that's what's great. I mean, I've now been, you know, working in the water space for 15 years and you know, a couple things. I mean, one, it's a completely solvable problem. So that keeps getting us out of bed. There's not a single person alive right now on the planet who we would not know how to help get water, right? It's, it's not like solving some of these cancers that just befuddle us and mystify, you know, doctors. It's not like many of these diseases where we're hoping for, you know, cures in labs or vaccines. We know how to help every human being get water. We haven't created the will to do that. We haven't allocated the resources, but we actually know how to do it. So that's exciting working on a problem that you know is solvable to, in the most definitive way. Um, the other great thing about water is that everybody thinks it's a good idea. So whether you're a person of faith or not, uh, wherever, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, everybody thinks humans should have clean and safe water to drink. You know, you, you don't even begrudge your enemy, you know, a drink of, of water. So... It's a, it's a universal common good. It's something in a, in a growingly contentious world people can agree to agree on. You know you've impacted someone's life in a positive way if you've helped them get access 
to the most basic need in life if you've helped them get clean water. So over the last 15 years, that's allowed us to build a really diverse movement of millions of people now from you know 150 countries who all stand for clean water. And, you know, as you mentioned, have given, you know, over 500 million pounds now or over close to $650 million. Yeah. And and what are those early stages like? Because, as you say, you've been doing that for 15 years and you're talking about a problem which is easily identifiable. And at this point, as you say, you, you know what you need to do to fix it. But there must have been that first couple of years when you founded a charity water and you, and you possibly weren't sure where to even begin with this. How did you how did you go about setting it up and how did you get that early phase out of the way successfully? Yeah. Okay, well well the mission was going to be very clear. And if you met me 15 years ago, I would have said the mission is to bring every person on earth clean drinking water. So that was like you could say it in an elevator, you know, you could say it very simply. What, what, even naming the charity. I mean, I wasn't very creative. Charity water. <laughs> a charity that helps people get water. Yeah, I can't, I can't make fun of the name of a charity, though, can I, Scott? So <laughs> it's, it's pretty straightforward, though. Well, well you know, but it, at least at least you know what we do. Um, you know, the I had the advantage, I think, of being thirty, not knowing much about, well, not knowing anything, if I'm honest, about institutional philanthropy or global humanitarian aid work. I was a club promoter for ten years, and then I volunteered for two years, you know, in this hospital ship in Africa. So I had the advantage of just talking to everyday people, you know, around my age who worked at a bank or who worked at Sephora, you know, or who worked at, um, you know, MTV at the time. And I realized that while people liked the idea of this mission, there was this huge skepticism when it came to charity. People would say, I don't give to charities because I just don't know how much of my money would actually reach the people who, who need the help. And, you know, there were, I don't give to charities because it's just a black hole. You know, there's a lack of transparency. And, you know, some of these people, they pay themselves millions of dollars and they drive nice cars. And, right, there was just, there was a whole kind of basket of skepticism, of cynicism when it came to giving. Um, this may surprise people, but 42% of Americans polled said they didn't trust charities. 70% of Americans said they believed charities wasted their money. Um, I, I've spent a lot of time in the UK. We have an office there. It's even worse. <laughs> you know, so there, there are parts of UK and Europe where the cynicism is even greater than that of Americans, which surprises people because Americans are actually known to be very generous. So I thought I could solve this through a disruptive business model. And I, I wondered what it would look like if I could separate all of the overhead from the public donations and raise that separately in another bank account. So I made this promise from day one, and I said that 100% of every dollar, every pound, every euro, every krona coming in to Charity Water, 100% would go directly to build water projects that would help people get clean water. And then in this other bank account, I would scrap for the staff salaries, the flights, the office rent, the Epson copy machine that we needed to buy. Um, the second kind of pillar then was we would also use technology to prove to people where their money went. And Google Earth and Google Maps had just come out. And I said, every water point we build, I'm going to put on Google Earth and Google Maps so people can see the satellite images of these projects as they're built. And we're going to create the world's largest kind of data layer of completed projects in the world. 
And then the third idea was just that we believed for this work to be impactful and culturally appropriate and sustainable. It had to be it had to be led by the locals in each of these countries. So no dude like me from New York should be running around Uganda with a hard hat on, you know, barking orders to a people on a drilling rig. We would hire Ugandans, we would hire Ethiopians, we would hire Cambodians. And our role would be to raise as much capital as possible in the in the most hyper transparent and efficient way and then grow the capacity of these local hero organizations um, to hire more, you know, more, more local staff to get the work done. So kind of put all this together, Ian, and, and actually day one of Charity Water, I just threw a party in a nightclub because I didn't have any better ideas. And uh, I said, okay, I'm going to do this thing called Charity Water. 100% of the money is going to go. Uh, I threw my 31st birthday party and I gave everybody open bar for an hour and 700 people turned up and to get inside the club, they had to donate $20. And at the end of that night, we collected $15,000 and we took it immediately up, up to northern Uganda and we did our first few projects. And then we sent the proof of those completed projects back to all 700 people. And we said, you came to a party, you gave a small amount of money, here's where 100% of the money went and here are the people whose lives you have impacted. And this idea of closing the loop was so powerful the, the response we got back was just overwhelming. You know, people never expected to hear from a charity going to some club and tossing, you know, 20 bucks in a, in a bin. And we realized that if we could institutionalize these ideas, this 100% model, this, these kind of proof loops or impact reporting, then, you know, we could probably really grow and scale this movement. Yeah, it, it, that's actually incredible. And that first project, when you've gone out to Uganda, I'm, I'm assuming you've got no experience of having done this before. No, I just found somebody who said they could drill some wells with money. And, uh, you know, we, we didn't really know what we were doing that much at the, at the beginning, Ian. Um, yeah. Maybe with many entrepreneurs that you have to work out supply chain and, and figure it all out. Um, you know, now we've got 20 people and over 250 years of experience just on that team you know, of, of water expert and hydrogeology and all that. But yeah, back then, um, Hey, you know, what can you do with $15,000? And somebody said, I could drill a couple wells. I said, well, will you take pictures? And then we went to, you know, we went to go and see those actual new wells, uh, and it was and document them. And it was pretty exciting. Oh, that is, that is fantastic. I mean By the way, I, I went back 12 years later to see that first well, and it was still working, which was so exciting. Um, you know, that's, I, I'm sure there's people listening that, uh, you know, that wonder about the sustainability of projects. And, you know, that's something that now as a mature organization, we've invested um, millions and millions of dollars into, uh, now we've actually got sensors on many of our wells that will tell us if they go down so that repair teams can go and, and, um, and, and, you know, bring them back online. But back then it was just so cool to see kind of a decade plus of impact you know, from 20 bucks at a nightclub thrown in a, in a, in a bucket. Yeah. And, and from this point, Scott, I'm, I'm trying to figure out for our readers. I mean, there's plenty they can take from this already, but I'd quite like you to pinpoint a few of those things. So on a self-development level, I mean, I found it interesting that you said, you know, this is just what entrepreneurs do. Just go out there and, and find a problem and be ready to kind of fail forwards if it doesn't work out. Um, but I, I wonder what you've learned about yourself through this, because this is you know, a huge amount of travel, a huge endeavor, um, a real passion project. What, is it, what has it taught you about you as a person and you as 
a kind of entrepreneurial figure? I think you really need a clear vision to be able to do hard stuff for a really long time. Um, I mean, it has been extraordinarily difficult to grow a $100 million a year organization you know, over 15 years. I mean, if I, uh, you know, I was doing 90 flights a year, some of these year in coach all around the world, you know, just totally trashing my body, you know, changing time zones. I've been to Ethiopia 31 times. I've been to 70 countries. Uh, I've been in some of the roughest environments on planet Earth, you know, 120 degree desert heat with, with people who are just, you know, suffering with, with, with death and disease and, and tragedy. I think you really need that vision of, you know, what, what is the North Star? And for me, the North Star was really everybody has clean water one day. And, you know, you just, I think you just have to, you, you, you can't, I, there's this quote I, I came across from like an ancient rabbinic text that somebody had put on a, a deli storefront. And it said, do not be afraid of work with no end. I think you kind of have to embrace that never ending work. You will never get there. You will never get to that end goal. But if you know where you're going, you can make a huge amount of impact along the way. So I think it's, it's about grit and resilience, but knowing where you're going, knowing what it's all for, the kind of world or legacy that you're trying to, to, to create. And that, that helps you with, with a lot of really difficult challenges you know, along the way. Yeah, and, and, and what you've done is, is you've made a huge switch in what you do, right? You've, obviously, there's some transferable skills, but you, you've completely shifted your career and your, your effort in, in, you know, overnight, effectively. And my, my kind of thinking here is people listening to this podcast might be in a similar position. They might be in a role, and I'm not encouraging people to quit their jobs, just be <laughs> clear on that, but... I, I, there are people that might be listening to this who, who feel like they're lacking a sense of purpose right now um, and they might be better off doing something else. So what would your advice be to someone who is thinking of making a big switch in what they do? I think you have to get involved in things with purpose. <laughs> um, you know, maybe you don't need to sell everything and, and quit your job and, you know, fly to a country you've never heard of before, <laughs> like, like was my case. Um, but I think getting involved in, in things, you know, I, I think... So many people may feel overwhelmed with all of the problems they see, right? We've got problems here at home, problems in our backyard with homelessness or poverty or, or, or hunger. Then we've got all these problems in, in, as global citizens, right? people without water, uh, children who are being trafficked, you know, uh, a, a climate you know, that, that seems to be uh, changing rapidly, you know, or, or at least certainly is putting vulnerable communities uh, at risk around the world. And, and I think sometimes, you know, people just do nothing. It's like, well, the world is so bad. I'm just paralyzed by the amount of needs out there. And I think, you know, I would encourage people to just start giving, to start giving time uh, and time and talent and then giving money to, to causes that you trust, that you can, um, that you can learn about, that you can research and it's almost like a, a muscle that, that gets worked out. And the more that you give, the more you give. The more you want to engage, the more you can see the solutions that maybe these organizations are bringing. Or, you know, if it's, if it's volunteering locally, you know, you can see the people whose lives are better, you know, 
because they just interacted with you or the food you were handing out or, you know, the services you were providing at, at that local shelter. So I think it's really about just trying to get people to take those first steps and and step out and start engaging. And maybe the first couple things you engage in, they don't have your heart. They don't feel like that's the thing you can uniquely contribute to. Um, I would just encourage people to, to keep going. You know, like what thing is just not okay on your watch? And it may be different for you than it is for me. For me, it was, it's not okay that my kids are born into a middle-class life where they will always have clean water. Like my kids will probably never drink dirty water in any situation in their entire life because of the privilege they were born into. 10% of the kids in the world have a radically different experience. They will never drink clean water. And yeah, that's just not okay with me, that we know how to do something about that, and yet we're not going fast enough. And we are, you know, kids are dying right now because Charity Water and other organizations have not been able to move enough resources uh, to, 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 you know, to get this work done. And there are people dying every single day because we're not going fast enough. So that's kind of my, you know, and, and 15 years later, that keeps me going with as much passion and energy and, and sometimes, you know, anger at our, our lack of speed and scale. Because I just, I believe the opportunity is, is so big. We should get this done. I mean, we're, you know, we're landing spaceships on platforms in oceans. And yet, you know, we can't get water to 700 million people. Yeah, it's such a, <laughs> as you say, such a, a kind of brilliantly simple problem in, in some respects and what you're doing is clearly made a massive difference already so scott thank you so much for joining us on the day it all changed honestly great to hear about charity water great to hear about your personal story and i suspect a lot of our listeners will want to check out what you've been doing uh, having listened to you uh, thanks everyone for listening in this has been the day it all changed i've been ian horn see you all again soon thanks everybody 91 the investment manager seeking opportunities in change the world is constantly shaped by change and change brings opportunities, but opportunities are not always obvious. 91 was born in times of change and has seen past its distractions to seek real investment opportunities to help clients reach long-term investment goals. 91. Investing for a world of change. Find out more at 91.com. Capital at risk. 91 is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.